God, thank you for this morning, God. Thank you for these men and women who are part of my family, part of your church, God. Amen. God, I pray that you speak through me as I, uh, as I share some things that I've been learning about you, about your son, about your plan to bring him to this earth. Amen. God, uh, these are important topics that I'm going to be talking about, and I'm, I don't feel entirely qualified to talk about them, but sometimes they burn on my heart, God, and I feel like it's, it's important things that we all should know, and we're just going to scratch the surface of, of the plan that, that you've had since the beginning of time, God. Um, I, pray that, I pray that it's useful, that pe- people can learn something new today. Um, ultimately, God, I pray that we would glorify you and that this knowledge, God, would lead us to, uh, to do good, to be righteous, to follow your son, and to live, uh, to live in his church as a family, God. Thank you for him. Thank you for all the things you've done for us. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Morning. Morning. I'm Alex, if anybody didn't know that. Um, my wife, Lindsay, is here right in front of me, so I can make fun of her during my sermon. So, this, uh, a couple years ago, I read a book called From Shadow to Reality, and a guy named John Oakes, has a PhD in a couple things, actually, uh, but namely chemistry and uh, biology and a master's in theology. So he knows what he's talking about, and he wrote a book. Um, <laughs> he wrote a book about the correlation between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so I read this book like two years ago. And when Keith asked me to, if I'd like to preach, I thought, you know, this is a great opportunity to share what I learned reading through that book. So I revisited it. I put some things together. And, you know, as I was praying, this is going to scratch the surface of something that is hugely important. Um, Show of hands, who was born into a practicing Jewish family? Yeah. No, probably none of us and probably none, if very few uh, people that you even know were born into practicing Jewish families. But the people that the New Testament, that were reading the New Testament for the first time, or rather the people who were part of the events in the New Testament, most of them were Jewish. Uh, specifically, you know, Jesus' apostles grew up Jewish. And so the things we're going to talk about in the Old Testament and things in the New Testament, these are all things that would have been commonplace to them. You know, as, as common as, you know, an episode of Seinfeld is to somebody who has been alive for more than 30 years. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's things that they would have taken for granted, but that we really don't know because we live in America and there isn't a huge community of practicing Jews, uh, probably because Jesus came. <laughs> um, and, and so it's, it's a lot of knowledge and it's a lot of connections that have kind of been lost through the last two millennia. So uh, you can open up to Hebrews 10, but I'm going to start off with a question. <laughs> what have you learned by following an example? Or what have you prevented by following an example? So something that you've learned by watching somebody, watching a video of somebody doing something, or something that you've not done because you watched somebody else fail at it. Yeah, Jacob. Tie a bow tie. Tie a bow tie. Yeah. Okay, how'd you learn that? How videos. Right, how long did that take you? Uh, about five minutes. Yeah, well done. Good example. Yeah, for sure. Allison. Cookie decorating. Cookie decorating, yeah, and you've gotten pretty good at that. <laughs> David. This is actually a really scary one, but I was thinking about it earlier when, um, uh, during communion.
communion. During my obstetrics rotation, I had to do circumcisions. So that's fun. Interesting thing to bring up. <laughs> it comes up a lot. There's definitely, I wanted somebody there. It's a very important that I get that right. <laughs> you don't want to mess that up. You don't, you don't get a <laughs> For the sake of everyone involved. So there would be somebody leading me through every single step. So that was, that was a big, a big uh, How did it go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it felt good for, for the receiving for end. Me. I mean, for Elfrida. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, that's intense. And making a turkey. Um, there was a nice old lady in the grocery store who took me around and took me and showed me everything I needed to eat Aww. and everything I needed to make, and I never made a bad turkey. Well done. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, so we, we, we could get a lot of examples of, of things that we've learned or even the things that we've prevented by watching other people do them. Uh, a lot of things that come to mind are all the like fail videos that you see on, on YouTube nowadays. People like jumping off of bridges and they didn't measure the bungee cord and they like smack the water or something. You know, dumb things that you're like, well, that was a dumb idea, but you can learn not to do that by watching those videos and watching their example. Um, so this is, uh, that's kind of a, a loose, a loose example of what God was doing with the Old Testament when he brought Jesus and gave us the New Testament. Um, so we have two covenants. So you've got a kind of a title for my sermon, um, written as examples and warnings. And that's in, the, that's in the Bible. We're going to read that in a second. But let's see, make sure this is working. Cool. So we have the law. That's uh, most of the Old Testament would be considered the law. Hebrews 10 Verse 1, it says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And before I jump into this, if you normally take notes, or even if you don't, I would recommend trying to write down what you can. But you don't need to write down the scriptures, because these will all be online, and there are a lot of them. So you might not be able to get them all written down. But write down what you can. Um, you can ask me questions afterwards. But this is a good thing to take notes on, because I'm not going to cover enough. Uh, there's no way to cover enough of this topic without really <coughs> having a few classes or reading a few books or you know diving into Jewish history for you know an extended period of time. But I'm going to try to at least touch on it. So so we know the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6 it says, "Now these things in the Old Testament occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as the Israelites did." And jumping to 11, it says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So we, we know really quickly that the apostles were aware that the Old Testament were written down as warnings. Now, they had their own meaning, and they were important stories for the Jews, important things that happened and real lessons that were learned for, for, Jewish, uh, for the Jewish faith. But when Jesus came, it was a whole new meaning. Yeah. Um, the shadow was you know, lifted, and it became even a new reality in Jesus. In Matthew 5, we know that Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Um, it's cool stuff. All right. Cool, cool, cool. Did I jump? 
In Romans chapter 16, it says, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings, by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. And then in Colossians 1.25, it says, The commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. So we see Paul is describing the Old Testament as, as a mystery that God set for us. And it may not seem that way. It doesn't, it's not that way for Jews. People who are still Jewish, it's a list of historical events, and they're seen as they are. But Paul is saying here that's, that's true, but God was also setting forth a mystery that wasn't solved until Jesus came. Um, and it was you know, kept hidden until Jesus came. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Some definitions before we jump in. A foreshadow. So a foreshadow is an indication or suggestion of what is to come, an object, event, person, a noun that, that represents something of greater significance coming in the future. The next one is going to be a prefigure. Does anybody know what a prefigure is? Guess. Something. Yeah. Sean. Something that is indicative of something that will come later in his life. Yeah, exactly. And what's cool is it's, you know, almost the exact same thing as a foreshadow. The difference being that a prefigure is typically almost an exact representation in the past as as the antitype that comes in the future. And we're going to talk about types and antitypes a little bit. But you got foreshadows and you have prefigures, very similar. But the prefigure is more specific. The foreshadow is a more general concept that's being shown in the Old Testament and realized in the New. A symbol. That one's easy. It's a sign representing something else. So we have a type and an antitype. The type is the symbol. So um, we can think of uh, the manna in the wilderness uh, when the Israelites are wandering and God provides the manna. That's a type. The antitype is Jesus being the bread of life, the food that we are sustained by. And then a prophecy. There's a couple of definitions for prophecy, but while we're talking here, a prophecy is going to be a specific written or spoken prediction of events that will clearly be in the future for the predictor. So the other definition of prophecy would be um, really the prophets in the Old Testament were giving instruction. They were repeating God's words and telling the Israelites what to do. So prophecy is also just an instruction from God. But in this case, we're talking about something that was predicted that will happen in the future. So we're going to talk about prefigures and types today. And I'm going to go through a few main ones in the Old Testament, kind of in order chronologically. Um, But we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. And something a little bit risky about starting in Genesis 2 is... We don't have, by our own archaeological means, we don't have historical evidence that anything happened pre-Genesis 11 and 12. So Genesis 1 through 11, we have, as Christians, we have faith that those are historical events. 
But by our own historical means, we don't have any proof or archaeological evidence that those places existed, that those people existed. We don't have a time frame that they existed in, although we can guess it was at least you know, 2,000 or plus years uh, BC. But the reason that we can trust that, and that's not the topic that we're going to talk about today, but we can trust that because of the overwhelming evidence of Genesis 11 on. We have tons of historical and archaeological evidence that supports both the existence of all these people and the, the events themselves, you know, things, kingdoms rising and falling, um, inscriptions that have these people's names on them. And uh, it, that's, that's something to look into as well. But it's important to know that without trusting the historicity of the Old Testament, none of this matters because it, it's not real. <laughs> so so we, have, we have to start at that level. We have to start at the level that we're going to take Genesis 1 through the end as fact, as historical uh, events. Let's jump in. Adam and Eve, we're going to run through that. We're going to run through so four main uh, events. Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham and his family, and then we're going to talk about the Exodus. So big topics. I'm going to try to get through them. So turn over to Genesis 2. Most of us probably know the story of Adam and Eve. Um, Generally, when we talk about Adam and Eve, we are revolving around their fall, the beginning of sin, um, the mistake that was made, the choice that was made. In Genesis 2.16, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So most of us probably know that scripture, and then we know that after that, a serpent appears in the tree. This is after Eve is created. And so God has created this man and this woman in his image so that he can have an intimate relationship with them. It's what he wants with all of us. And then he gave them freedom, freedom of choice. Uh, now, the choices that he gave them, he didn't control, but those choices had inherent consequences. Yeah. So whatever they did choose was going to have some kind of result, good or bad. Adam and Eve abused that choice, which is what we're going to talk about in a second. And that resulted in death and separation from God, and they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. So that ultimately, they trusted their own wisdom over the wisdom of God. And uh, that may sound familiar. <laughs> it, right. it happens all through the Old Testament, and it's, it's the same problem that we all still have. Right. So what God was doing in this beginning chapter, two chapters, he was laying the groundwork for the entire New Testament message, which is he wanted an intimate relationship with us, and he gives us free choice, and those choices have consequences. Um, so we have to choose if we're going to trust our own wisdom or God's wisdom. So Genesis 2.16, uh, sorry, not Genesis 2.16, Genesis 3.15. Talking about the serpent, it says, uh, this is, so, let me back up a little bit. God creates Eve as a helper for Adam, and then Eve gives women everywhere a bad name by listening to the serpent and taking the unnamed fruit and eating it, and then handing it to Adam and telling him to eat it too. Uh, now, they both get uh, in trouble with God for that. God you know, scolds the woman and then scolds the man and tells her, why did you listen to the woman? And there's, a whole, there's a whole good monologue that he gives them, and then he kicks them out of the garden. But... Uh, <laughs> This is what he says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. 
He, being her offspring, will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Does sound familiar? Talking about Jesus here. Satan's going to attack God's work in Jesus, but ultimately, God had a plan from the very beginning to set up a man, the offspring of Eve, to crush Satan's head um, as, as Eve's offspring. So we're starting super early. God already knows. He has a plan to, to solve sin, uh, but he hasn't revealed that to anybody in the Old Testament. Right. And we'll, we'll read Romans 5.12. Uh, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. What we're going to find out is, you know, sin entered the world through Adam, one man. And Adam is a type of Jesus. A little bit different than the typical sense of a type. He's almost the opposite of Jesus. Through Adam, sin was brought to the world, and through Jesus, sin was taken away from all people in one act. That's pretty cool stuff to look at. Romans 5.14, right after that, it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. There's Jesus again. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Amen. So that's uh, what, one, two, three, four, five, six verses that say the exact same thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> Clearly, uh, Paul was pretty, pretty ecstatic about this topic. He, he wanted to nail, nail the, uh, the, the nail on the head. <laughs> um, he, and he got his point across. You know, Adam was the pattern. And Jesus was the good pattern. So for us, before we move on to Noah, here's some things that we can take out of this. What are you doing to have a relationship with God that is intimate? That's what God wants. That's where it all started. He created men in his image to have an intimate relationship with you. Do you trust God? Do you trust his word? The reason God wants to have an intimate relationship with you is because his word is the end all. He does know what's best for us. Uh, that's why he created us. So do you trust him? Are some things too important to leave to God? I think that's what, uh, that can be where we get tripped up a lot, yeah. is this specific decision is the one that I can't leave to God. Chance or faith, what have it. This one's too big. I, I need to take this on my own. I need to take the reins and run with it. doesn't matter what God thinks this time because this, is, this decision is too big to have faith about it. So do you rely on your own wisdom or do you rely on God's wisdom for the big decisions? I think that's where it really counts. Amen. Right, let's move on to Noah. Turn to 2 Peter if you're flipping. Um, you don't have to flip. It might be better to just write things down. <laughs> 
So we all know Noah, and he built this big boat, and a flood came, as God predicted. So some, uh, some quick facts about Noah. When he was 500 years old, he had his first three kids. I was old. <laughs> um, so he had his kids, and sometime shortly after that, God came to him and said, I'm going to flood the earth because I am distraught over what I've created. Yeah. And he says, uh, right before that, he says, man's days will be 120 years. And most scholars read that scripture as, starting now, this statement, there's 120 years, and then I'm going to flood the earth. So we had about 120 years before God was going to flood the earth. He came to Noah and warned him because Noah was considered righteous in his eyes. Sometime when Noah was between 520 and 600 years old, so approximately 80 years, we don't know how long it took, but he built the ark somewhere in those 80 years, um, long enough for him to have his three children and for them to get married, and then he started building the ark. Then at age 600, the flood came, and it rained for a long time. And for an entire year, all the way up until, it says, the first or second month of, uh, of the full year coming around, they're on the ark. It's Noah and his sons, Noah's wife and his sons' wives. It's the whole family, and uh, they're on the ark because Noah trusted that this big flood was coming. And it says in Genesis 6-9, it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. And so, really, Noah's story is flooded with types and foreshadows. Pardon the uh, pun. <laughs> In uh, 2 Peter <laughs> chapter 2, verse 5, it says, If God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Yeah. So we see already there was a day of judgment when the flood came. And if you don't know, you should know that there's a day of judgment coming for us as well. And it says that because of what we see in the pattern of Noah, we can be confident that God knows how to rescue the godly. And hopefully we're trying to be the godly. Yeah. He knows how to rescue us from trials. And he also knows how to hold the unrighteous for their judgment. Yeah. Yeah. Let's try to be on the godly side, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> More in Second Peter, a little bit next page. In chapter 3, uh, Peter explains this a little bit further. He says, Above all, you must understand that in the last day, scoffers will come, scoffing, and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But these people deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Perfect parallel. And it's coming. Um, it, it's coming. And it says that, you know, there, there were scoffers in Noah's time. And the, the same people exist today. And some of us are or have been those people. And it's easy to, even as a Christian, it's easy to slip into that. 
It's easy to stop believing and stop remembering that there is a judgment day coming. Yeah. And we don't know when it's coming. Right. That it's going to come like a thief. Mm-hmm. And what's important is Noah had 100 years to, sh- to slip into that line of thinking. But he still built the ark. He continued. He worked. He told his family. And he was so confident that, and faithful that it was going to happen that he and his seven family members were saved. Amen. That should be our goal. We need to save ourselves. We need to save our hearers, as it says in Timothy. Amen. There is more. And Peter talks about it a lot. 1 Peter 3, it says, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. We're going to see through all, all the next uh, two or three of these big events in the Old Testament, that God likes to save people through water. And that wasn't happenstance. That was on purpose. Because now, as Jesus has come and died and raised from the dead, we can be saved through water. And Peter tells us incredibly plainly, that water that saved Noah, and will, as we'll see, saved many others through other events, it's the same water that we go through in baptism, yeah. where we participate in Jesus' death and we're raised back to a new life through the baptism of those waters. It's, it's cool stuff, and, and God was, was clear, and he gave us more than just one example. And what's cool is, really, it would be pretty easy to refute some of these if it was just one or two or three examples. But we have 27 books that are pretty good, or is it 36 in the Old Testament, That 39 that tell us about these events and that reiterate God's message over and over and over again through salvation by water and many other things, as we'll see. Romans 15.4, it says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. The flood gives hope to us, but it's a warning to the ungodly. And so, you know, our job here is we need to understand that we have that hope, but we need to share the hope with those who don't know it or haven't accepted it. Um, And, you know, we can have confidence that it is coming because of Noah, because of a number of other people that we'll see shortly. So before we jump into talking about Abraham, a couple of notes to make about this topic. Have you been baptized? That's an easy one. Yes? No? Do you know what baptism is? Do you know the significance of that event? Because it's not just a cleansing of the body. It's not just a general washing. Uh, it's, it's a real spiritual event, and something is taking place that God controls that we have no power over. And then do your actions indicate preparation or scoffing regarding Jesus' return? It, it, it lays out two possibilities, and it's are you, being, are you preparing like Noah was, or are you scoffing at the possibility of, of Jesus' return? We know that he's coming back. We don't know when it's going to happen. And all we're told to do is to prepare for that day. All right, let's talk about Abraham and his family. So Abraham's life serves as a type, really, of the fundamental teachings of the entire New Testament. Through his faith, he became the father of many nations. Talks about that in Genesis 17.5. And for us... He became the father of everybody who faith 
receives the promise that Jesus has given us, promise of salvation through baptism, through faith in him. And so while he was the father of physical nations of Israel, he was the type of the antitype now that is the father of all of us. For, uh, for the Jews, it was the Gentiles, but really it's, it's for everyone who accepts Jesus. And uh, Paul talks about that in Romans 4. He says, we have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or was it before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. So that's the Gentiles. Anyone who has believed but not been circumcised, that's the Gentiles in the New Testament. But then he does a coverall just to make sure nobody gets out of, the, uh, out of the inclusion. In verse 12 he says, And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also who follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So that's the Jews. We have the Gentiles, we have the Jews. It's anybody. What he's saying here really is that the circumcision didn't matter. It was, it, it, it was beside the point. You got, you got circumcised and you were a Jew and you were circumcised when you were born. Congratulations. That's not what matters. Right. What was credited to Abraham as righteousness was his faith. Amen. And how, how we have yeah. that, same, uh, that same righteousness is by our faith in Jesus. Cool. So <laughs> God calls Abraham uh, a certain point in his life to really leave a secure position um, where he has his own land to support himself, asks him to leave that and go wander in the wilderness. And so he does it. And he believes in God's promise of a son, even though he's super old when God tells him that he's going to have his son. Um, And then right after that, we see that God asks him to give up that promised son, Isaac. So let's look at that. Lots of foreshadow and lots uh, lots of prefigure in those few events. Genesis 16. So it's talking about Sarah. It says, now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him. So real quick, Abram, his name changes. It's not really crucial. You can look at it, but God changes his name uh, as, as a sign in their, in their relationship as part of the covenant. But, so I'm just going to try to change this so that it's Sarah and Abraham. It says, Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So Abraham agreed, for some reason, to what Sarah had said. So this is after God promised Abraham and Sarah that a son would come. But uh, Sarah gets a little bit impatient and resorts to something that ideally none of us have ever considered. Um, and so Abraham agrees, which is even a little bit more audacious, and he sleeps with Hagar, and she bears, she bears a son. Bears a son. His name is Ishmael. And at this point, Abraham is 86 years old. So Ishmael is born, and there's some prophecy about who Ishmael will become. That's not important to this particular point. Then many years later, uh, about 14 years later, at 100 years old for Abraham, uh, Isaac is born to Sarah. So it, it does finally happen, and they have a child. 
but they also have this other child. So there's two children, one who was born naturally through Hagar, um, and then Isaac, who was born by a miracle in incredible old, old age for, uh, for both Abraham and Sarah. And both of them really serve as a type for something in the New Testament. Look at that. All right, Galatians 4. Paul says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above and is free, and she is our mother, It is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? It says, Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So, breaking that down a little bit uh, more simply, (laughs) we have Hagar and we have Sarah, and they represent the two covenants. Hagar represents the old covenant, the law, Judaism, whereas Sarah represents the new covenant in Jesus, in freedom, in Christ. And their children, going even further, represent the Jews and represent the church. We have Ishmael, who continued to be a slave, just as the Jews were a slave to the law and continue to be a slave to the law if for some reason they haven't realized that Jesus was the one being talked about. And then we have Isaac, who is the child of freedom, who is the church, the body of Christ. And the uh, just cool that that was all set up just for the, not, not only, but importantly for the purpose of showing us what would become of the Jews when Jesus brought the church into existence. And what it's talking about um, when, it, when it says, get rid of the slave woman, that's a quote from, uh, from Genesis. When, when, uh, when Isaac is born, there's, a, there's something called weaning a, a child. And in Judaism, it, they threw a party when the child was weaned. Really, that's just the end of the child needing to be nursed by his mother. So when Isaac was old enough to no longer be nursed, they had a weaning ceremony, and uh, Abraham threw the party the day he was weaned. So as soon as he was done being supported by his mother, Isaac, uh, sorry, Abraham threw the party that day. And what it says from, uh, from an onlooking point of view, it says that Hagar's son Ishmael, who was probably about 17 at the time, was just laughing and ridiculing the whole event. And as I thought about it, it 
it really kind of makes sense that he would do that. He's a teenager, and this kid's coming into coming into his his territory, so to speak, and he's obviously the favored child. Certainly, he would have been jealous. Um, I would expect that he probably was a little bit angry. And I know in my tendency, if I was in that situation, I'd want to poke fun at it. I'd want to make it into this this debacle, this whole you know non-important event that was just dumb. Why are we celebrating this kid? Congratulations, he lived long enough to not need his mother's support anymore, um, which, by the way, wasn't all that common. So we, we can, I, I can understand why uh, he was poking fun at it. But it's the same with Judaism and Christianity. We see the entire life of Jesus, that the Jews ridiculed Jesus' teachings. They ridiculed the idea that a Messiah would come and die, of all things, for our sins, and not victoriously conquer the, uh, the city-state and take over and, and rule. That's what they were expecting and wanting. And so they ridiculed this, this new son who came in, uh, just in the way that Isaac came in. And so it's, it's cool to see that, uh, uh, that correlation. By the way, that's 18 centuries between those two events. It's a long time. And we can go further. Next page. Let's look at Genesis 22. Isaac's Abraham and Isaac's relationship is a, even a deeper type of something in the New Testament. In Genesis 22, it says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And Abraham replied, Here I am. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Sound familiar? Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, sound familiar? Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Funny how he disguised the whole event in worship. Um, We're not going to tell Isaac what's really going on, but we're going to go worship. So... We see Abraham didn't hesitate. He got up early the next morning and went off immediately. And it's pretty clear that this is a type for God being the anti-type and giving his only son to die for us. And you can even speculate pretty accurately that Isaac was willing to die because he had to allow his father to tie him up to a bunch of wood. He also carried the wood, very symbolic of Jesus carrying his, his own wood. He carried it, and then he allowed himself to be bound and was willing to die. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15.4, it says, Jesus was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And we have really two main scriptures. We know Jonah. Uh, Jesus specifically says in John that Jonah was, uh, was a type of, of his life, and that Jonah going into the mouth of the whale for three days and coming back to life, so to speak, at the end of those three days was the same of the three-day journey that he would spend. But here again, we have an an identical um, situation where when Abraham left out for Mount Moriah, he knew that death was coming for Isaac. But what's cool is in Hebrews 11, it says Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. He decided, when, when Abraham and Isaac left out, Isaac was dead. There was, there was no turning back, and Abraham was okay with that, and Isaac accepted it too, uh, probably reluctantly. 
But when God stayed, as, when God's angel stayed Abraham's hand at the very last second, Isaac came back to life, so to speak. And it you know, says such in 1 Corinthians, or sorry, in, in Hebrews 11. And it goes even deeper into it. Mount Moriah, where, uh, where Abraham and... So Abraham was from Beersheba, and God told him to hike up to this mountain. It wasn't a short hike because it took him three days, uh, estimating about 40 or 50 miles of walking. And so they hiked up to this Mount Moriah, and it seems kind of conspicuous or random. Why did God need them to go all the way out to Mount Moriah? There's hills nearby. There's a backyard. You, you, know, you don't have to do this all the way out in Mount Moriah, which had no significance. But... In 2 Chronicles 3, we find that Solomon builds the temple on Mount Moriah, and Mount Moriah becomes present-day Jerusalem. Wow. And so David, it, it shows that David was revealed by, by God revealed to David that the temple would be built on Mount Moriah. And Solomon, David's successor, does the actual building of the temple. And what we find out, they traveled about 40 or 50 miles for a very specific reason. And there's no way that this is coincidence. I would say that it could be, if not for the tons of other correlations here. There's Jerusalem. And you see up in the top right, does this thing have a pointer? I don't think so. It does? Oh, that's cool. So we see Mount Moriah. It's not on this map, but Jesus was crucified right there. So we're talking under a mile maybe two, between the inner city of Jerusalem and Golgotha, where Jesus was eventually crucified. So not only do we have this incredible event that foreshadows Jesus' death, but it happened in the same exact place. And God could have chosen anywhere. But he had Abraham and Isaac hike for three days, 50 miles, to get to this place so that 18 centuries later, Jesus could be crucified and fulfill the scriptures. That's cool stuff. All right, you guys with me? I know I'm going a little long. We're going to go through the Exodus. So the the Exodus of the Israelites um, from Egypt creates some good imagery of the different stages of our relationship with God now. So it starts out um, in, in Exodus 1. We're just coming out of Joseph's life, and Joseph has really come into good standing in Egypt. Pretty much he's the ruler, second only to Pharaoh. And, uh, and because of that, Pharaoh allows all of Joseph's people to move into Egypt. And so they, they grow and it says that they become more numerous. Do I have that on here? I don't. But in Exodus 1, uh, this is after the Israelites have continued to multiply and there's a lot of them in Egypt. Joseph dies, a couple generations pass, and a new king comes to power, a new pharaoh. And this pharaoh knows nothing about Joseph, doesn't care. And what happens is he finds out that, well, doesn't find out, he just realizes that Israelites are continuing to grow, and that could be danger for us. They could easily take us over because of their numbers. So what he does is he subjects them to slavery, and this is how slavery begins for the Israelites. Pharaoh, this new pharaoh comes into power, Joseph doesn't exist anymore, Favor is lost with the Israelites. There's too many of them. And so they get turned to hard labor just in case they decide to have any uprisings. And so this bondage 
to slavery in Egypt represents in the New Testament our bondage to sin. And we're going to find that out. Uh, we know John 8, 34, it says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Amen. And so what's cool is through, these, uh, through this captivity, through the bondage, the different events that the Israelites get stuck in, God always sends a savior or a prophet, somebody to bring them out of their predicament. So in Exodus 3, verse 7, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, he says to Moses, he says, now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So this is is where it begins. He sets up Moses as the savior, so to speak, of Israel. So here's some freebies. Uh, You don't got to pay for these ones. (laughs) Pharaoh tried to kill Moses as a baby. Sound familiar? Herod tried to kill Jesus as a baby. Shortly after after Moses was a little bit older, older, he kills a guy, and then he flees from Egypt into the wilderness. Jesus also had to flee from Egypt to prevent, from, uh, prevent being killed. His parents took him out of Egypt. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness before returning to save God's people. Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness being tempted before returning to save God's people. Moses led Israel out of bondage and slavery. Jesus leads us out of bondage and slavery to sin. Aaron prepared the way for Moses. John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. Going to the Red Sea, Moses led the Israelites through the saving water of the Red Sea. He opened up the waters and they walked through. Jesus offers us baptism and participation in his death and resurrection through that water. Moses gave manna in the wilderness to sustain and support the life of two million Israelites. Jesus relates back to that story and says that Jesus is the bread of life who sustains us. Moses gave water to the people in the desert, coming flowing freely out of a rock. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. Moses spoke to God on Mount Sinai, and Jesus spoke to God on Mount Hermon. And after all of this, Moses offered to give up his place in the book of life, if just to save God's people. And then Jesus realized the actual event of giving up his life to save God's people. So, Moses is sent to save the Israelites. He brings the ten plagues, and Pharaoh relents. So the Israelites leave under Pharaoh's order, but then Pharaoh changes his mind and chases them, and they get backed up against the Red Sea. So God tells Moses to raise his hands, and when he does, the Red Sea parts over the course of the night. Israelites start walking through. They're saved through this water of the Red Sea, just like we're saved in baptism. And we know this. Because of 1 Corinthians 10, it says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So we're, we're seeing that the Israelites were baptized into Moses just as we're baptized into Jesus, and also that they drank from a spiritual rock, not only a physical rock. And that rock represented Christ, who we now can drink freely from 
He's the bread of life, and he offers us the Holy Spirit. So we're seeing God likes to save his people through water. We saw that with Noah. We see that with Moses. We're going to see it again shortly. But one thing to note is that it requires faith on the part of Israel. Without faith, the, seas, the sea would not have opened. Without Moses truly believing that God was going to do that, he wouldn't have raised his hands. He wouldn't have expected something that insane to happen. But he did have the faith, and God relies on that faith. He relies on our faith to believe that he can do what he says. Amen. Once they were through the Red Sea, this is, this is the time that God sets up his old covenant uh, that we know of as the law with Israel. It's when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, speaks with the Lord, and brings down the Ten Commandments, and they have their covenant with the Lord. When we're baptized, we enter into the new covenant with God. So just as they entered into the old covenant through the water of the Red Sea, we enter into the new covenant through the water of baptism with God. And that new covenant is a relationship with Jesus. So the next stage in Israelite history is wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. You know, this, is, this is representative of us walking as a Christian. Once we're baptized and enter, once we enter that new covenant, just like the Israelites, we aren't miraculously apparated into heaven, um, to quote Harry Potter. <laughs> Bear with me on that one. <laughs> but certainly it, it would be possible for God to take us up and put us in heaven immediately. Um, he, he does so with, uh, with Enoch. And so we know that it's possible, but that's not what happens. We enter in a new covenant, and then God gives us time. He gave them 40 years for a number of reasons. Uh, he gives us a lifetime. We don't know how long before we're able to go to heaven. So what's the purpose of that? Let's look at that in Deuteronomy 8. God says, Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the, in the wilderness these 40 years in order to humble you and to test you, in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Amen. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We've heard Jesus quote that. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. We see that we know for for certain one reason that a number of people didn't enter the promised land was because they disobeyed God. And part of their punishment was not being able to see the promised land. We also know here that the 40 years also served as, as a purpose of humility and as, a, as testing for the people who were in the wilderness. They were being prepared to enter that promised land, which means that they weren't ready when they passed through the Red Sea to take over and, and harvest and run, work that land. They weren't ready for the promised land yet. So God spent 40 years preparing them. So what does that mean for us? God is spending time preparing us. Our life between baptism and death when we go to heaven is preparation. You know, we're called to help other people get to that point, but we're supposed to work on ourselves as well. We're supposed to be preparing because in the end, we're going to take, take hold, uh, be, be ushered into a new kingdom, a new heaven, a new earth, and it's, it's going to be the promised land that God had prepared all through the Old Testament. 
We're not ready for that when we get baptized. Yeah. That's why we're still alive. We're, there's work to do. You know, yeah. Not only is there a harvest to be had, but there's work on our own hearts. Amen. We need to be tested. We need to be humbled. And what we're doing is we're preparing for that day to go to heaven with God. Amen. So what we find when the Israelites enter the desert is initially they were probably pretty excited because there was a giant pillar of fire leading them through desert. It's pretty awesome. I'm sure it was amazing for them to see that. But things change somewhat quickly. In Numbers 11, it says, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Though we see at some point the Israelites had forgotten a little bit. And they started complaining about their lives. No longer were they okay with the bread of life in the manna that God provided. They wanted to go back to Egypt. But potentially they, they forgot about the slavery that they were in. Right. Or maybe the slaughter of all the male Israelite children's, children that, uh, that Pharaoh ordered. Yeah. Um, or, it, everything was, was bad in, in Egypt. But they focus on the maybe potentially one or two good things that they remember because they want to complain. It's the cucumbers. <laughs> it's the leeks. <laughs> but, you know, the same thing can happen to us. Some of you might remember the day that you were baptized, the week that you were baptized, or maybe the week before you were baptized. That's a big event um, you know, for each of us. It's the day that we come into a new covenant with God. And I'm assuming, because I know I was, that you were excited when that happened. If it hasn't happened yet, when it does, you will be excited because it's you're turning over a new leaf, you're truly becoming a new spiritual being. Amen. It's an awesome time. But it's easy to forget. They were in the wilderness for 40 years. I haven't been long alive long enough to be a disciple for 40 years. But I imagine that I'm going to forget some of the things that happened this year, 40 years from now. They forgot. They, they forgot the things that God had given them. They forgot that the pillar of fire led them through the wilderness all those years, that an entire sea opened up and drowned their enemy for them so that they could be saved. Yeah. Um, and not only that, but that they were supported and sustained by the manna and the water. It just didn't taste very good. <laughs> right. And so what it comes down to in Hebrews 3, what it comes down to is they stopped relying on God. We can stop relying on God as well. Let's look at Hebrews 3. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. And so he's talking about the people who weren't allowed to enter the promised land because they didn't share in the faith that God truly could deliver them, that God would fulfill what he promised. Yeah. And so they disobeyed. We can do the same thing. And once we're baptized, that's not the end. Yeah. 
it's yeah. still possible, as we see with those people who were kept from the promised land, it's still possible for us yeah. to be kept from the promised land right. yeah. if we fall short. Amen. So our goal is to prepare for that day and to make sure that we don't fall short of it. Amen. It's simple. Um, not easy, but it's simple. Yeah. All right, let's jump, let's jump on for the sake of time to Canaan. So we, we, have, uh, we have a couple of stages. We have slavery. It's our bondage to sin in the New Testament. And then we have wandering in the wilderness that represents our lives as Christians. So we can imagine that Cain in the promised land is a type of heaven, the antitype. So God was refining his people, as he refines us, to prepare them to enter Canaan's land. Amen. So in, Jesus, in Genesis 13, it says, The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are to the north and south, east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. So this is back in Genesis, a long time before any slavery uh, had occurred. And then we jump into Deuteronomy. Chapter 8, it says, The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs, gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat, barley, vines, and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. A land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can de- dig copper out of the hills. So it sounds pretty good. Deuteronomy obviously was a good bit after Abraham's life. We see that God is setting up these events. He promises it to Abraham. He reiterates it to the Israelites. Um, and we see that they're going to have everything that they need, just as we will have everything that we need in heaven. However, the antitype is far better than the physical. So we have the physical Canaan, and they do enter it, and they take control of it. Um, Some other things happen, and and really the foreshadow changes once they're in that land. But we see that in foreshadowing the spiritual land, we get something that's way better than anything that Canaan had. Um, And so the, the point here is that we have to make effort to enter that land. Mm-hmm. Hebrews 4, it says, Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day being judgment day there remains then a sabbath rest for the people of god for anyone who enters god's rest also rests from their works just as god did from his let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example the israelites example of disobedience and so again we we see a continual pattern many, many different examples of how entering the promised land for the Israelites is really just the type of us entering heaven. And before we wrap up here, God gives us one more thing to look at right at the end, right before they're entering Canaan's land. uh, They're almost there. They're ready for heaven, or in their case, Canaan's land. And they hit a giant river at flood stage, Jordan River. And so God has to do, just has to show off and do one more thing in Joshua 3. When the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now, the Jordan is at flood stage, all during harvest. 
Yet, as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream just stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Araba, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. And so God's people entered yet another new relationship with God in the promised land. The purpose of being in that land was to have fellowship with God. And it's the same purpose that we're going to enter heaven, is to have fellowship with God. And that's what we're preparing for. We're preparing for a day where we'll be face-to-face with God. We'll have fellowship with Him. Our intimacy with Him will go to a new level and a new covenant that we haven't even seen yet. And it's something that we can't imagine, but that we can see bits and pieces of all through the Old Testament. So the conclusion of all of this, I think I have a slide about it. Yeah. So the Bible progressively reveals God to his people, and there's a lot more. We, we just scratched the surface of, of the Old Testament. But we know that as it progressively re- reveals God and his plan, we, we realize that he had a plan from the very beginning in Genesis 2 when he created man. And the reason that he created man was to have an intimate relationship with us. Now, we messed that up a bit with sin, and he knew that we would do that, but he gave us the choice anyway. And we still have the same choice, but now he gives us, he gives us the freedom of making those choices in Jesus. Amen. He gives us the freedom of being forgiven from our sins. And so, we, all of us disciples, we're preparing for Jesus' return. And our goal is to make every effort to enter that rest. It's possible not to make it, as we found, because Israelites didn't all make it to the promised land. But our goal should be to make it, and our goal is to help each other to make it. All God wants is an intimate relationship with us. And so as we work on that through our life, we get to magnify the intimacy of that relationship by making it to heaven, a place that has everything that we need and more, and will really it'll satisfy us in ways that beyond what the Israelites were satisfied in the desert and even in Canaan's land afterward. So I can encourage you guys, that's all I have. I would encourage you guys to look at this stuff, to, to go back and read through some of these slides. They're going to be online. But then even to either check out a book or, or just study through the Old Testament in general because it is, it is everywhere filled with types and foreshadows and prefigures of the New Testament. God's purpose not, was not only to create a people in the Old Testament was, but was to create a foreshadow Amen. of his people yeah. now in the church as Jesus' body.